Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I'm Art China, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome as our guest, Mike Lebstock. Mike, welcome to the program, and thanks for coming. Arch, thank you so much. Truly a privilege to join you. Well, it's a privilege to have known you these past several years. And Mike, before we start, would you introduce yourself a little bit to our, our listeners, please? Your background, where you went to college, and, and how long you've been teaching? Sure. I'm currently teaching in Beaverton, Oregon, which is a suburb outside of Portland proper. This is going to be starting year 38 within the next week. So it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but that's what the numbers say. So I'll have to go along with it. I actually went to college in Fresno, California, and that's where I started my teaching career and taught there for 30 years, did elementary for about 20 of that, and then decided to see how the other half lives and uh, <laughs> stepped into the middle school fray, as it were, and uh, have been doing that ever since. So yeah, eighth grade history, U.S. history has been sort of my campsite. So that's how I ended up with, that's how I ended up meeting you. <laughs> so was jumping into the eighth grade the fire or jumping out of elementary was the, the, the fire? pan. It's so funny because you know, I, I, when I go places and people ask me, well, what do you do? And I say, you know, I'm a middle school teacher. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And what's funny is, you know, middle school kids, it, it, look, we all went through it. I mean, it was, it was weird. I just say weird is the new normal. That's just what middle school is. So having done <laughs> uh, elementary was, you know, was great. But, you know, that curiosity of and what happens when they leave? And uh, I had the opportunity to go into a middle school situation. I did seventh grade for, I've done seventh grade for a couple of years, but eighth grade has really been it. And they're, they're fun in weird ways. The maturity difference is phenomenal between the boys and the girls and everything in between. It's just nuts, but it's a fun nuts. There's, there's an incredible amount of energy. And when it comes to history, a lot of these kids have not exactly had what you would think of as a great experience. Mostly it was, you know, open book, insert face, and we'll talk to you later. And so they've hated history. They, they kind of come to you already. Hate, it's like, okay, so how can I make it worse for you? You already hate the subject I'm going to teach. So anything we do has got to be better. So it makes it a lot of fun when you get these kids who will say, you know, I've always hated history and you made me love it. And, you know, it's not my goal to make them love history, but it's to at least get them to like it maybe better than they thought. So, yeah, it's been a fun ride. And has your whole career been in public school, parochial school or private school or both? It's all been public school. So I started in Fresno, in Fresno Unified, which is, depending on what day of the week, it's, the, it's either the third or the fourth largest district in the state of California. Hugely diverse, socioeconomically, ethnically, every language is everything you can imagine. And that's where I got started. Started with fourth grade. It was, we had Southeast Asian kids coming over after Vietnam. And, uh, you know, and, 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 I mean, kids talking about being scared to death to step on an escalator because they see it go up and, they, mm -hmm. and people disappeared and they had no idea what happened to you. You know, they, it was a reality check for me as much, I think, as it was for them. But to kind of come out of that experience. So that was literally the first 20 years of, of dealing with elementary was this incredible diversity. And in moving into the middle school, I taught at Edison Computech Middle School, which is a magnet program. It focuses on math, technology, engineering, but, in, but you have these incredibly high-end students, but they come from every walk. So you had students that were, you know, taking summer vacations in Europe, and you had kids who quite literally, the, their door didn't touch the floor of their, we'll call it an apartment, to homeless. I mean, so you had every, everything going on. And that was a fabulous experience, teaching experience, too, before I came to Oregon met my wife and came to Oregon and saw God's country. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, I didn't know Oregon was here. And, and yeah, so anyway, being here in Oregon and Beaverton is also somewhat like Fresno. 
It's got a lot of the diversity. It's a little bit smaller, but it is Beaverton is the third largest district in the state of Oregon. Hmm. So you still have, you know, complications of large school districts and large class sizes. I had 44 students in one of my six classes this last year. So yeah, trying to figure out how to be a good teacher when you have really large class sizes is always a challenge. So I guess maybe that's why 38 years has gone by. No two years have ever been the same. (laughs) And listeners, Mike is being a little, uh, I wouldn't say coy, but he's being very humble. Share with our listeners, please, because I believe that you have received a couple of um, statewide awards in the past several years. Is that correct? You're going you're gonna to put me on the spot. You Absolutely. Know, it, and it's one of those things we... We don't do it for that. It's not because of the awards, but I guess, you know, to be recognized is never a bad thing. So I did, I was the California Society for Social Studies Teacher of the Year, then was the Oregon State Teacher of the Year, and have won the Daughters of the American Revolution Outstanding Teacher of American History, the National Award. So, you know, it's, it's nice to be acknowledged, but again, it's not, the, it's not necessarily the headline. Well, Mike, it's not necessarily uh, that important as in that regards to, to mention it, but knowing that there are phenomenal teachers out there is a great comfort, particularly to a lot of our listeners because they're, they're so concerned with education. And listeners, I will honestly tell you this, I would never, ever once even hesitate to put my kids or any of the kids that I've ever taught in my 25 years in Mike's classroom. He's a phenomenal teacher. Uh, he's got a great passion for America. Uh, he's a great passion in this teaching. He's constantly continuing to learn to improve his own knowledge base, to improve his kids' knowledge base. So, yes, it's not there. We're not there necessarily, Mike, to win awards. But when the awards are given because it's well-deserved and well-earned by, by you, and so many others that we come across. So. Well, thank, I, I appreciate you saying that greatly. I mean, it, it means the world. Yeah, I think when you see kids coming out of your classroom and years later, you know, they'll, they'll message you on Facebook or something and they will quote verbatim something that you said in, in a good way. And sometimes you think, I never even knew that that student was paying a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet they really are. And they're, they're taking in all of this stuff. And uh, as you know, you know, sometimes it's not the content that you teach. It's the fact that you hear them, you see them, and you're trying to encourage and inspire them. And I think with history in particular, you know, I tell the eighth graders, you know, in four years, you get to vote. And you should see the look on some of their faces. It's, it's, it's priceless mm-hmm. because it just never occurs to them the significance of what it is that they're finding out to be a participant, an active, engaged, informed, Mr. Jefferson would love that, participant in our society and, and why it's so critical that they understand where we've been so that they consider where we want to be. Um, and in that, I, I take that role, in, as you know, incredibly, incredibly seriously. Yes, Mr. Spike certainly does. I have seen him in action <laughs> over these past several years. So, Mike, share with our listeners, please, your interest in what you would like to share today and what did you bring to us? Well, this started in about 2005. I was a teacher participant in a teacher institute, and I had no idea what a teacher institute was. I was teaching fifth grade at the time in Fresno and part of a history grant leadership team. And as part of that, writing the grant, you know, we had to think of, well, what are we going to ask or provide teachers as far as professional development and so on? And one of the things that we wanted to do was to get teachers to go places. We wanted them to get a context for history that they were teaching. And one of the options was a place called Colonial Williamsburg. I had never heard of it. Honestly, had never heard of it. And it sounded really interesting, but had no mental picture for what this could possibly be. 
sounded great. Let's do that. So we sent three groups from Fresno to Colonial Williamsburg starting in 2004. I was slated to go in 2005. And I just remember arriving there and just being completely blown away by, I guess it was as close to being in a time machine Mm -hmm. as I could imagine, and being able to see the buildings and all those. So in the process of participating in this institute, you engage with character interpreters. So these are people, some of them are actually professional actors. Some of them are actors, I would call them actors slash historians, all phenomenally brilliant in the research that they have to do to take on these roles as historical characters. But what caught my attention was as we're engaging with Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson, and, and I'm, I'm looking at the adults and, and they're just, their faces couldn't, I mean, almost glazed over. They're so taken by this opportunity. They're in the presence of this individual that they've only seen in pictures and so forth. You know, you know reality is mm-hmm. that that's not really who they are, but they suspend reality. And I think that gift that they have to be able to do that, to grab adults as well as kids. And I looked at that and I went, I have got to do this in my classroom. I, you know, I have these kids in Fresno who are never going to come here. They'll never are going to have this opportunity. And, you know, I always packed two suitcases because I'd bring back as much of Virginia as I could to, you know, have my classroom. <laughs> because I figured, oh, well, at least I can do is I can let them put their hands on stuff. But this was something better. This, was, this would be a way for them to actually engage with and be in conversation with the past in a way that the only way I could think that they could do it is if they were in Williamsburg. So I thought, well, I can do this. I think I can do this. I don't know how, but I think I can. And fortunately, in Williamsburg, there were a number of shops that sell stuff, imagine that. Um, clothing items. I'm thinking, well, I've got to look the part, and I kind of look like these people. And so I set about purchasing items, spent way too much money. But I was really proud of myself because I had myself a pretty good you know, outfit. I'm going to come back and do this. Second problem, who are you going to do? And then in the back of my mind, I remember the conversation I had when I was like 22 years old. I think it was Thanksgiving with my grandfather, my mom's dad. And he said something in passing about being related to John Adams. Mm. And honestly, Arch, at the time, I wasn't even teaching it. It didn't resonate. And from my years in school, I knew he was the second president. If you had asked me anything else about him, I couldn't have told you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just didn't have a great history experience as a kid. But I thought, well, that would be, you know, what if I did him? I'd have to find out about him. But that would give me kind of a family buy-in. I, I'm, I'm related to this guy. I don't quite know how, but somehow I'm going to do that. So that's kind of where I jumped on the idea of I'm going to interpret this guy named John Adams for my students in my classroom in Fresno with the idea that this is going to give them a different way to understand history. And so that's kind of where this whole journey began. I never imagined it would kind of have blossomed to what it has become. One of the things that I thought about when I chose Adams was I needed to figure out what is the relationship that I have with him, as well as understanding who he is. And I guess that's been kind of this ongoing, I mean, it continues to be this ongoing thing. I have more books on him than probably one person should have. And, you know, like you, reading all the time, you know, you're always finding out something else new and interesting and different about this person. So initially, you know, the thing was I wanted to find out genealogically, you know, so I found this piece of, I mean, it really was a scrap of paper that my grandfather had given me, and I don't know how or why I managed to hold on to it, but I had, and he had kind of handwritten out family names and so forth, and he had this connection, and here's, you know, John Adams, second president. I thought, okay, 
that just tells me that I'm related to him somehow. And I didn't have the time and, you know, technology at the point to really go in farther than that. But at least it just said, yeah, I got this connection. So that's going to be my buy-in with him. And then proceeded to start reading about him somewhere in there. The miniseries, HBO had the miniseries about Mm -hmm. him. I found that interesting, at least from a perspective of getting a very broad look at him, albeit, you know, it's HBO, but it was still, it was an interesting way to step back and go, wow, there's a lot about this person. I had no idea. And that only kind of encouraged me to to continue to read more. The tricky part of doing a character in your classroom, I discovered, of course, is your students know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So even if you're dressed, you know, in the funny costume and you got your tri-corner hat and wig, et cetera, you know, it's like, yeah, they look at you and it's like, okay, so you're just kind of dressed funny, but we Mm -hmm. do know who you are. So it meant having to kind of explain to them what I was going, what I wanted to try to do with them. Typically, what I'll do with classes, Mr. Adams has traveled quite a bit. Typically, what I'll try to do in classes is I want to kind of give the teacher a support and say, okay, this is what I would like. I want it to be a dialogue. I don't want it to be, Adams would say, an oration. I'm not going to speechify at you because then I'm sort of, and I know that that's typically what you see in Williamsburg, Mm -hmm. you know, the the performers typically are talking at you. With the teachers, there's more interaction And I liked that. I wanted my kids to feel involved and not talked to. And so the scenario kind of came up as Adams is on his way to the First Continental Congress. Of course, a whole lot of things have taken place. Stamp Act moving forward. I kind of give the teacher that window of these are events that have happened. And depending on who the teacher is that I'm going to be going into their classroom, I will provide more support and kind of explain some things because they may not know. Even if they're a history teacher, they may not know. So that their kids will be sort of prepared for when he shows up. He's coming into a tavern. You happen to be there. Some of you might be of the loyalist mind. Some of you might be of the patriot mind. Some of you are just undecided, really don't know which way you're going to go. But here comes this guy, and you know who he is. And you know kind of what he stands for. And here's your opportunity to call him out on stuff or to agree with him on stuff. And to do this in about a 20, 25-minute window of time. And then the other thing I saw in Williamsburg with the teachers is the character interpreters would do something they never do in public. They come out of character and they would talk about, they would answer questions. They would either answer questions about their character or about being a character interpreter, but they kind of left it open-ended. And I liked that. I liked the idea that you could have a moment with them away from the very, you know, they got to stay within the lines of their character to, I can now talk outside of it. And I thought, that's what I want to do, too. I want to be able to make sure my students can talk to me or talk to this teacher about the character or whatever. And so about 25 minutes of being in character with the kids. And then my trick would be to kind of just turn my, I would kind of take my leave, turn my back to them, pull my wig and hat off, terrible hat hair, and then (laughs) turn around and say, hi, you know, and and be, be myself, be Mike Lebsock and not be John Adams. And so that became kind of my routine. It had to be flexible because not all teachers, depending on what they knew or where their kids were at in terms of their instruction, but I kind of gave them a framework for how this could work. And that's been a pretty successful framework that I've been able to use with most of the classrooms that Adams has gone into. Mike, did you find that the majority of your students or a percent of your students, even from the years you've been doing this, and even teachers, had any knowledge of John Adams at all? Or was it just pretty much, who is this guy? I would say it's the who is this guy. 
It really is. And even with adults, this past 4th of July, I was asked to go out as Adams for a 4th of July. It was a commemoration or celebration of the 4th of July from Oregon Pioneers. And uh, they had this lovely program and it was kind of having pioneer people from Oregon in character talking about, you know, what the 4th of July meant to these pioneers. And then they were going to kind of do this throwback to, hey, you know, what would it have been like way back when it started? And Adams comes. And so I'm talking to, there's probably a hundred or more. It was outside. And you could just tell and talking to people, they have no idea. I mean, they know who he is by name. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything about his role and his significance. And, and, and again, I, I, I own that too, because I didn't. I had never been taught who this guy was. And, and really until the first time I went to Boston, did it really sink in? It's like, this guy is bigger than people really understand in terms of his role with this revolution and then even beyond, but it was, it really blew my mind. But to your point, yeah, it's also why I like doing him because he's unknown. I've had every kid want to call me George Washington. You know, they see the wig, they see the outfit. That's their first (laughs) assumption. George Washington. (laughs) Well, listen, you know, I'm sorry, my, my listeners, no. you have to understand that Mike is probably about 5'9 and about mm-hmm. 140 pounds, and Washington was <laughs> six, two and a half, about 185 before the revolution. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he and I are probably not ever going to be confused with each other. And, and even it's funny because when I do Adam's course, you know, the kids are all convinced, and a lot of adults too. You know, they see the pictures of these guys, and a lot of them are wearing a powdered wig and they look older because, you know, white hair, well, yeah. you must be old. And so they perceive these guys as all being very old. And, and, and in 1776, Adams is 40 years old. I'm 20 years older than he is. Here's, here I'm 20 years older doing a guy 20 years younger than me. But because of the wig and everything else, nobody really seems to care. Right. right. <laughs> One of your motivations, Mike, was that you found that you have a, a relation to John Adams. What are mm. some of the other things that really sparked your interest in wanting to pursue doing an interpretation of John Adams and continue to do a deep dive into study of this man? I think what motivates me is as I keep, it's like turning the, the next page in a book and discovering, oh my gosh, there's that too. And then the next page, and so I keep discovering, it's a process of discovering and talking to, I've become um, good friends with a number of the folks that do interpretation in Williamsburg. And that's what I, I ply them with questions the same way. It's like, how, how do you know your person? How do you figure out, you know, because everything is not scripted mm-hmm. and you're having to understand them. And so that demands, especially when you do a character who is, is known. I mean, a lot of people don't know Adams, but, you know, you, there's plenty of books on him. So I can't, I, I don't have the luxury of making up fact. I have to stay within that framework. I had a third grader once, one of the best questions I ever got. Third grade kid asked, if I had a pet, if Adams had a pet, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I had never read anything <laughs> where Adams said anything about having a pet. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie to this kid. And, and that's what I'll tell my, my eighth grade students. And I've explained this to them. I said, look, you know, I've had these circumstances where I've had to give a response, but I'm not going to lie to them and make it up. Well, I knew he, Adams had a farm. He had farm animals. And so I just kind of diverted to mentioning farm animals and just kind of alluding to whether I would refer to them as a pet. That was my response. And then later, when I came out of character, I came back to that same kid and I explained to him what I had done, that I hadn't tried not to answer his question, but I also didn't want to not tell him what I had never read. And so that process of continuing to, I never know what people are going to ask. That's one of the most exciting challenges of stepping into a character. You don't know what someone's going to ask. I don't provide you the question for you to ask me to give you a canned answer. 
I have well, to know the character enough to be able to sort of say this sure. is what they would have said. I'm curious, Mike, did Adams have a pet? To this point, I have, I, you know, it's funny, you asked that, and, and I have looked. I, it's almost like I've gone with a purpose to try to find out, did he have a pet? And to this point, I have still not found anything or found anyone who can tell me that he actually did. So I'm going to go with, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I would, I, would, <laughs> I would guess, I would guess, and this is a guess, Adam seemed to be like he would probably be a cat person, not a dog person. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you know, it's, it's, he's so busy. I mean, he hardly seems to have time for his yeah. own family. I'm thinking, well, you know, when was he ever home enough to? So maybe there was a pet running the house, and you know, Abigail and the kids got a chance to, you know, play with it. But I don't know that he ever did. <laughs> you know, you just mentioned, and again, you know, we constantly are learning. I have really never thought of Adams having a farm. You know, you think of him as a yeah. diplomat and vice president, and everything, and a lawyer. But I've never, never thought of Adams as having a farm you know so these things are just constantly known to all of us they are and and you know so much differently i mean i always think of when washington you know he 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 was so ready to go back to the farm you know and mm -hmm. i had that picture of my mind of that was his happy place and i think for adams too although he was so entrenched in this idea of liberty that that became his passion above mm -hmm. all else and that yes there was a farm but I guess you got to credit Abigail because she was running it more than he was and the kids. But, I mean, it was really hers to maintain while he was busy trying to get a country going. <laughs> it just again, this is I just can't envision. Still, I still can't envision John Adams as a farmer with everything else that he was saying. It, it doesn't seem like it was his. Yeah. It, and you, I mean, I always found it interesting, too, that his dad, his dad's goal for him was you're going to go and be a minister because that was, you know, that was up there. And he goes to Harvard and it just wasn't working for him. And then ironically, he, he teaches briefly and he <laughs> acknowledges, yeah, that's that was not his calling to be a classroom teacher. And so here I am stepping into that. Too, and I find it almost ironic that, you know, my role as a teacher and trying to do a person who just figured, yeah, teaching isn't it. But the law, that might be my calling. And from what I know, that John Adams was truly one of the best lawyers in the nation by the time of the American Revolution. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. he wow. He had such he's 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 very one of the things i've i've read it's it's interesting not just to read him but also to read around him like reading mm -hmm. about other people that lived at the same time and their comments about him what they thought about him and it's this level of incredible respect for him that you know he does what i tell the kids one of the things i like to point out to them is here's a guy who does the right thing not the popular thing and he mm -hmm. does it a couple times and the first one was the boston massacre and nobody wants to touch that case. Nobody, because it's exactly what they had hoped would happen, that the, the British had finally made that one stupid mistake that was going to force them to have to leave. Right. And here steps in John Adams, because no other lawyer will take the case. And they're begging him, you know, and, and out of respect for him, which, again, is interesting that the British had respect for him as a lawyer. Not that I thought that they figured he could get them off, but that he would do right by the law. And that was his thing. It's like, if we're going to be anything, we will be ruled by law, not by emotions and passions and mobs. And here's his cousin, Sam, who's all about emotions and passions and everything <laughs> <Yeah>. else. <laughs> and, and the two of them, you know, they, they cross swords a few times, and especially over the Boston Massacre. And that Sam is just aghast that his cousin would take on this case, it's like, well, you can't win. I think it's more a case of I don't want you to win. And maybe he thought it was even possible. Maybe that was like, I'm going to plant the seed because I can't let you win. And, and then I, for John to sort of say, look, it's not me. It's the facts. The facts are going to decide this.
And in Mike, the end, we are, um, excuse do. me for interrupting, but believe it or not, we're like out of time for this segment ah. of the show. So we're going to continue in the next show, listeners, with Mike. And Mike, if you would pick right back up with the Boston Massacre in our next show, we certainly would appreciate it. So I would be happy to. Thank you. We want to thank Mike for coming and beginning to share a little bit of background of John Adams. And we're going to continue listening in our next show with Mike. So, Mike, again, thank you for coming and beginning to share with our listeners and myself about John Adams and the cat owner. Right, Mike? The cat owner. <laughs> the cat owner, yes. <laughs> so, thank you, Mike. Thanks. This Thanks. is 1180 AM WFYL, Working for Your Liberty.